This is no April Fool's joke. Our March membership campaign was so successful that we're extending it through the entire month of April. Enjoy 50% off the regular monthly or annual membership price. Visit thedsrnetwork.com slash buy and enter code NOFOOLING, one word, to receive 50% off our regular membership price of $50 per year or $5 per month. Members receive access to bonus content, an ad-free listening experience, exclusive blog posts, an invitation to join the DSR Slack community, and more. This is a limited time offer, so act now. Visit thedsrnetwork.com slash buy and enter code NOFOOLING to receive 50% off. Thank you. This is Deep State Radio, coming to you direct from our super-secret studio in the third sub-basement of the Ministry of SNARK in Washington, D.C., and from other undisclosed locations across America and around the world. Hello, I'm your host, David Rothkopf. Welcome to DSR. We've got a jam-packed podcast for you today, only discussing really, really big stories, for those of you who remember the Ed Sullivan show. That's that's that sounds like how the Ed Sullivan show used to start off. Really, really big show. Um, uh, we're going to discuss three really big stories, and we're going to do it in thirty minutes. And we're going to do it with two of our best friends, uh, Ed Luce, the Financial Times. Hi, Ed. How are you? Uh, wonderful, thank you. Excellent. And David Sanger of the New York Times. How are you, David? I'm good, David. Good. So let me start with uh, story number one. There, there. We're going to go through three of them pretty quickly. Uh, Story number one, Ed, the past couple of weeks, all the big financial big shots in the world have been here in Washington. Uh, They've been talking about things. If you read some of them, Larry Summers, some of the others, they're like, oh, well, a recession's right around the corner. If you talk to some of the other ones, uh, I I talked to some of the other ones because I was here, you know, you run into these people. They're like, "Uh, no, no, there's not going to be any recession. Um, uh, Things are going to be just fine. So you talk to all of them and you write about them. Answer the question for us, Ed. Is there, you know, is there going to be a recession or not? Uh, I had a long talk with Hank Paulson, um, who who um, thinks there is going to be a recession, and then I did an interview today that'll run in tomorrow's FT that uh, with Janet Yellen, who doesn't think there's going to be a recession. Um, so, a former Treasury Secretary and the current Treasury Secretary, the answer is nobody knows. And one of the uh, really striking things about the World Bank IMF spring meetings as this used to be you know where uh, where the, the great sort of uh, masters of the universe would not only decide what was going to happen but know what was going to happen or claim to nobody really is claiming to know um in spite of what i just said about paulson and yellen there is such low visibility as they put it uh the impact of all this credit tightening you know people moving their deposits from small banks to big banks or from banks altogether to money markets to feel safer. Uh, The fact that regional banks aren't lending, none of them wants to be exposed, means that um, that's that's equivalent to the Federal Reserve, you know, increasing interest rates. Monetary conditions are tightening because of fear. Um, And that generally you would associate 
with a recession. Uh, if there is going to be a recession, it'll be a mild one unless something, some other massive shoe drops. And since shoes do have a sort of habit of dropping every couple of months, uh, you've got to bet on it happening. So I would say there probably will be a recession. Okay, well, you know, I sat at lunch, as it happened, next to Christine Lagarde, who's the head of European Central Bank. She had just finished reading your article, which I found incredibly annoying, because she just turned to me and she was like, oh, did you see this great article in the FT, Ed Luce, you know, Hank Paulson? But I kept it, you know, I was like, yes, Ed did a wonderful job on that article. Um, But, uh, yeah, but she was like, no, I don't think... You say that even if you haven't read, read those articles, right? Well, but in this case, I did. And you should, if, I don't know if you have or not. You should you should read it because it was it was really good. It was a great conversation. Ed went all the way to Illinois, which is somewhere in the middle of the United States. Barrington, Illinois. Yeah, forty mile forty miles north of O'Hare, um, where they have kiosks that you can retire your flags in. Retire your flags. You know the retired flags thing. I always, I always feel like, oh, maybe I am a foreigner when I go to a small town and I see the things that you, you, uh, you a depot to to deposit your retired stars and stripes. Ah, okay. So that they can be disposed so of properly. Yeah. Okay. Got it. <laughs> wow. Well, that's a. I got to tell you, that's news to me. Anyway, um, uh, David, uh, you, you know, back in the day, and I remember because I was there. Um, used to be, you know, covering economics for the uh, New York Times. And uh, this was the uh, day of the Washington consensus. This was the day when these meetings Ed talked about were uh, uh, important and people seemed to think they know what they were doing. Uh, but I just saw an article in the Financial Times t- today by Ed Luce in which he said the Washington consensus is dead. How does that make you feel, uh, David, old? It, it makes me feel old, but it makes me feel good. Um, so there are a couple of elements to, I think, what was driving the politics of all of this. The first you've covered, which is this disagreement about whether in the short term we are headed into a recession or not. It's a little bit like asking people where we will be in the war in Ukraine in two or three months. And they sort of say, well, it could be stalemate or, well, the Ukrainians could win or, well, I think this is going to be a really good time for the Russians. So on the two big issues of the day, uh, we can't we, it's not like we don't have a long term horizon. We don't even have a short term horizon. Um, Yellen was out on the Sunday shows this week. Uh, basically making her argument that she still thinks it's possible we could have a soft landing. And most of the people I've spoken to think that if there is a recession, it's probably a short one. The question for Joe Biden is how short is short? Because that all fits into where you feel uh, in it will fall in the presidential election. But back to the meetings here, you know, Throughout the global south, among all of those who were talking about reform of the World Bank and the IMF, they say, you know, we've had all these projects that we've been talking to you about pre-COVID, during COVID, post-COVID. Some of them are 10 or 20 or $30 billion, and you're saying we don't really have the money for it and so forth. And suddenly Ukraine comes along, and the Ukraine reconstruction uh, discussion and there are hundreds of billions of dollars on the table. Some, admittedly, coming from money that the Russians stupidly left in accounts that the West could grab, right? And they're suddenly saying, "How come you were able to do in months 
for the Ukrainians what you couldn't do in years for us. And yes, you can answer you can answer that with all kinds of questions about uh, unprovoked aggression and so forth. But it's fundamentally not a bad question. And uh, I think, if anything, it has fueled the understanding that these institutions have sort of run out of out of the gas they need to be in, that their prioritization is wrong. What do you think of that, Ed? And, you know, you I did make reference to your article, so you can uh, talk about that, too. Uh, I, I owe you more than if you were a beer drinker. You know, you'd be you, you'll be you'd be getting drunk pretty soon, David, because I owe you lots yeah. of beers now. Yeah. <laughs> um, I think David's right. I mean, the the you know the gap between you know our par- parsimonious response to um, all kinds of developing world or global south, whatever we're calling it, um, needs, um, and you know the uh, largesse of our support for Ukraine is glaring in the eyes of the, of the global south, notwithstanding the fact that it's not apples with apples. Um, you know, when you're talking about an unprovoked war of aggression by the other great nuclear power, namely Russia. Um, and that is a problem. And it did show up in, um, in Washington last week with the, the spring meetings, the, um, uh, the um, sense of frustration that you know, twenty, thirty billion here and there, spread out across hundred and fifty countries, amounts to peanuts. Um, you can't expect poor countries to make transition to green energy unless you heavily sort of incentivize them to do that when coal is so much cheaper. Um, you look at a country like Pakistan, which has had floods sort of a biblical level, covering a third of the country or something like that, and temperatures during the monsoon season, wet bulb temperatures that kill thousands of people and prospects of much worse, to say to them, no, we're not going to suspend your debt repayments um, just because there's been a weather event. That's not in the contract. Um, You have to keep paying them. When those weather events are chiefly, you know, because of the carbon we have historically been pumping into the atmosphere. So I totally understand their frustration um, and I think it's going to get worse because I don't see us stepping up with sort of grand marshal plans from the West, particularly when Ukraine is commanding so much of our aid resources. Yeah. And also, you know, when it's so hard to restructure these things to reflect global realities, you and I were in a conversation a few days ago where we were talking about, you know, China assuming a bigger role. And there was an Indian president who was like, why should China have a bigger role? We don't want to have China to have a bigger role. And, and there are, you know, some old a- animosities that make it difficult to get these institutions up to date with the modern times, which leads me to the second big story, one that was on the front page of both the New York Times and the Financial Times, which means it's definitely a bona fide big story. Uh, and that is that sometime soon, could be this week, could be in a couple weeks, could be in a couple months, India will become a larger country than China. Um, uh, uh, and, uh, I noticed also in some of the conversations that I was having this week, David, and don't tip your hand for the next subject, cause we're going to talk about that in a second. But I noticed that some of the Americans that I was speaking with in the crowd, um, would say things like, oh, we're, we, we love India, India, we need India. India has got to be on our side because China's our big problem. Um, even though, the Indian government is not really doing anything great for democracy. 
There's plenty of reasons, actually, for us not to be getting along with India. Uh, there's certainly more reasons for us to be critical of India. Uh, and yet the uh, anti-China crowd in Washington, that doesn't suit their narrative. So they seem to be leaning into India, our buddy. What do you think? Uh, I was just there a few weeks ago, and uh, a few things were notable. Um, the line among the Indians right now is... Um, Gee, we're really touched by how you're concerned about all of this invasion of the sovereign lands of other countries uh, and how you're pressuring India to join in on the uh, anti-Russia crowd for Ukraine. And they said, um, where were you uh, in amassing sanctions and uh, armor and tanks and all that every time that we have our borders um, broken through. They're referring, of course, to, you know, their various back and forth with Pakistan. Now, there's a huge difference. Uh, though that, that conflict is taking place largely in unpopulated areas. We're not seeing shelling of cities and innocent civilians and all that. They're not there to be hit. But the point they were making was you only care about uh, Ukraine, because it's up in the midst of Europe, where you really pay attention to what may be happening, and you don't really care that much about what happens in South Asia. Um, that may be a convenient excuse. It is pretty clear that the Indians are doing everything they can to avoid angering the Russians right now. Their uh, military forces are still wildly dependent on old Russian gear. And the U.S. is going around not so subtly saying, hey, we've just had a great demonstration of how well all that gear you bought from the uh, Russians works. So what do you think now? And uh, by the way, uh, interested in some F-16s. So we are trying to sort of use Russia's pain and angst to basically make the point you don't want to sign up with these folks. Um, it's a hard moment for India because uh, their long-running disputes with the Chinese make it hard to be um, on Russia's side without being on China's as well. So, uh, so they've got a lot on their plate. I think the second big issue that has come up is, given the fact that the population has grown so, why aren't they able to be a jobs machine the way China has been over these past decades? And that's the core problem. We have key technologies in 10, 12 areas where we are highly dependent on China, and we don't have that situation around the world with India. And they know they have to solve that, but they've known that for a long time. And while I would say their economy and their tech sector was in far better shape than the last time I had been there pre-COVID, uh, they still have a long way to go if they're going to try to catch up with, with China. So, Ed, you are um, uh, a certified uh, India expert, having written a great book called, and just get the third beer ready for this one, In Spite of the Gods, um, about India. Um, but uh, ha having said that, uh, you have watched this phenomenon as well. It does not look like India's becoming the most populous nation on earth is actually going to result in India having that much more leverage or being counted uh, that much more um, uh, or that much higher on sort of the league tables of major powers. 
Um, I would note, uh, just uh, prior to you saying anything relevant to what David said, that I just saw a story saying India is now trying to enter into a free trade agreement with Russia, um, which uh, is uh, consistent with uh, David's point. But it looks like India is going to be the most populous nation in the world, not much of a democracy. And if they try real hard, kind of the biggest country among the non-aligned. Yeah, I think that's right. I mean, uh, we, as David pointed out earlier, you know, we're um, uh, trying to pressure India to be more aligned with us on Ukraine. They're not going to be, but they're certainly aligned with us on China. And therefore, we're turning a blind eye to all of the um, transgressions, which are mega of the um, of the um, liberal democracy that India used to have. Um, you know, I was based there for several years. Most of my friends in journalism have either given up, left the country, or are now gritting their teeth and working for basically propaganda outfits for Modi. Um, and it's a very depressing picture. Uh, civil society organizations closed down, harassed. My great friend Pratap Banu Mehta ran one of the best last remaining independent think tanks in uh, New Delhi. Modi can't tolerate that. So it's been subjected to the most excruciating tax audits and tax raids, and it's being shut down. Um, that is not the action of a liberal democracy. We don't care because it's a counter against China. Um, but we're going way above and beyond what we need to do. Gina Raimondo was there recently, the Commerce Secretary. She described Modi as in gushing, cloying terms, as somebody who cares about the Indian people and, and uh, is deeply conscientious leader and one of the most popular leaders on earth, deservedly. That is just not necessary. To play the game of real politic, you smile and you're polite, you don't criticize, you do not need to praise to the high heavens. So uh, it's an unfortunate dimension. Just one final point about Kashmir. Um, India is quite right. Um, there's been Pakistani-sponsored terrorism across the line of control into Kashmir for uh, decades now. Um, but India does not want external involvement. It says this is an internal matter to India. Um, so it doesn't want... Um, any Western assistance on Kashmir. Its formal line is that. So it's really not comparable with Ukraine being invaded, where it cannot survive without Western assistance. Yeah, no, 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 no question about that. Uh, okay, third big story. And, uh, you know, just out of fairness, I've mentioned, you know, three things Ed has written. So I have to mention something uh, that David has written a third of. Uh, and that is uh, a column that... <laughs> <laughs> he just he can't resist the knife here, can he? <laughs> that, that was good, David, that, I have to say. That, <laughs> chapeau. chapeau. Uh, there is a story on the New York Times website right now that will be in the printed version of the paper uh, tomorrow. Called what we Free call the dead tree edition, David. The dead tree. Yeah, exactly. Um, I, I don't I, I have not received a printed newspaper in, I think, 10 years. But in any event, three nuclear superpowers rather than two usher in a new strategic era. Uh, clearly, India is not on that list. The three that are on the list are Russia uh, and the United States, both with six six thousand some odd weapons. 
Uh, and China, in the midst of a big push, trying to take it from a couple hundred to a thousand, little over a thousand at a rate of about a hundred a year for the next decade or so. Uh, how does that make China a superpower? And since nobody can use nuclear weapons, why does this matter? Well, nobody can detonate nuclear weapons yet, although I don't think we are done with Vladimir Putin's threats to it. But countries use nuclear weapons all the time. If North Korea didn't use the threat of using its nuclear weapons, I doubt they'd be there today. Putin's been making use of his nuclear weapons to keep the United States and NATO from directly entering the war. So their very presence is a um, fortunately so far peaceful form of use. But the, the excellent, essence, excellent point, by the way, I just I have to say excellent point. Well stated. Thank you. Um, but in this case. We went through the entire Cold War basically facing off against one major nuclear power. Our uh, arms control treaties, our bilateral ones, were all just with the Soviets and then with the Russians. The Chinese didn't really matter. They had a, a philosophy of something called the minimum deterrent. They kept a couple of hundred nuclear weapons, thought that was enough. Mao Zedong viewed the arms race as a crazy waste of money that he could not afford and did not think was necessary, and he had it right. And that remained the policy for half a century, more than half a century, until Xi Jinping came along. And as he recognized that China was rolling in to compete for the number one spot and would probably come under pressure to enter some of these arms control treaties, and wanted to establish, particularly after the Ukraine war, that he too could make use of nuclear weapons, even if he didn't detonate any of them. He has put China on a very major and very rapid growth path. Um, we open the story by describing a breeder reactor, which is a specialty kind of reactor that produces plutonium, which you can make weapons from that is under construction, about to open up the first of two, uh, 135 miles from uh, Taiwan, right on the Chinese coast. And it needs to get nuclear fuel to go in the front to produce plutonium out the back. Guess who's providing the nuclear fuel? Russia. Probably the most concrete example of their cooperation yet, some of it negotiated long before Ukraine happened. But when Putin and Xi met uh, a few weeks ago, they quietly signed an agreement to extend that cooperation in the nuclear field for the fuel. We have no evidence that they are cooperating on weapons, on strategy. But it is clear that the United States is going to have to begin to think about a world in which it is competing with two major nuclear powers with arsenals roughly the size of our own. Uh, the Pentagon estimates that uh, China will have 1,500, roughly the number we have deployed by 2035. And there are some experts who think that is a conservative number. So, um, Ed, I'd be interested in your reaction to this story, but I, I think there's a, a subtext to it uh, that uh, David um, uh, bumped up against there, and that has to do with 
the strategic decisions being made in a China that is already under considerable economic pressure. Um, China's got, you know, problems in its real estate markets, got problems in its overall economy. Um, uh, uh, and the apparent decision of China, not just in nuclear weapons, but in all weapons, to invest in kind of arms race type spending uh, is not going to solve those problems. Uh, uh, they are not addressing, they are not making progress in solving their political problems. Is this a sign of, you know, a bridge too far for Xi and, you know, a power grab that is likely actually perhaps to end up weakening China? It's a really, really important question. I mean, just thinking of what countries will do to go nuclear, I mean, in this case, to increase nuclear, uh, uh, think of Ali Bhutto, Pakistan's leader, saying they would, he would, Pakistan would eat grass in order to be able to afford money for nuclear program. Uh, and although he was then executed following a military coup, General Zia, you know, continued the policy of eating grass to make Pakistan nuclear, and and he did. And India, pretty similar story. Um, North so North Korea was, actually ended up eating grass. Yeah, North Korea literally. <laughs> It's probably the best example of that. So, you know, I I don't expect this sort of scarcity of resources trade-off to in any way weigh on Xi Jinping's mind. Uh, of, of course, he needs to um, provide economic security to the Chinese people if he's going to keep the political monopoly, the Communist Party and his own presidency. But um, uh, he'll have to find another way of doing that. China is 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 heading into sort of middle-income trap that economists call which is you get old before you get rich um, and then it becomes very difficult to continue to grow to get into the high income bracket and China's you know China's people have aspirations and expectations and they've shown as they did with the zero COVID protests that they can protest and they can you can get wildfire protests spreading very quickly so I think the, the, your question, David, you know, is, is, is on target. The, the stability of, of China is definitely a question of the, in the years ahead. Yeah, David, last question, but it goes, picks up on that. China for, you know, historically over uh, millennia has made its top priority being the stability of China. Um, and uh, clearly there are big centrifugal forces within the country and there are deep economic and political problems within the country. Uh, and yet she seems to be turning outward um, in a way that could uh, threaten the internal stability. How do you see that balance going forward? I think the biggest challenge that Xi Jinping is going to have right now is obviously job creation if their growth comes down to the levels that most other developed economies come to. That's the biggest threat to internal stability. The biggest threat, I think, externally to him is that we are moving to a world in which everybody's trying to have control over their own supply chains. And so while he is trying to bring in key industries, semiconductors being only one of them, but many others, uh, batteries, future of quantum computing, uh, he's trying to keep all of those at home. He is running up against 
a, a world in which we are all now trying to become less dependent on China as well. And um, I can't think of something that would lead to more instability than getting rid of those interconnected elements that were supposed to tie all of these societies together. That's the big risk in having separate internets, right? The the, the internet was supposed to go pull everybody uh, into um, into one uh, a big happy interconnected family, even if the country borders remained. Um, I think nuclear fits into that a bit because I think he feels very much like this is what superpowers have and that if he gets into a world in which the U.S. and Russia or even just the U.S. is demanding arms control, he wants to do it with as many cards on the table as we have. And um, that's hard enough, but everything that we know about deterring countries we know from deterring nuclear countries, we know from the bilateral element of the Cold War. We could, we are, have not dealt with the three-body problem before, and it's all, the math gets a lot harder, and so does the strategy. Yeah, on the nuclear question, no doubt. Clearly, the three-body problem is what motivated Nixon and Kissinger initially to open up to China. Uh, but that was a geopolitical alignment uh, and clearly a, a different story. Uh, so here we have uh, international economy could be going into a recession, might not be going into a recession, uh, headed by international institutions that can't adapt to the times and are losing uh, traction in their ability to do so. We have major shifts in uh, uh, key geopolitical rankings, uh, including notably um, uh, nuclear powers, which is going to... Um, uh, uh, cast a big shadow over the next uh, decade, decade and a half, um, not just in terms of uh, uh, arms control, but also can, in terms of the economic health of China, its competitiveness, uh, and how that plays into uh, their relationship with the rest of the world, including notably us here in the U.S. Uh, we will keep tracking these things. We're very lucky to be able to have people with insights like David and Ed. We were going to have Rosa with us uh, today, but the scheduling got a little screwed up. She'll be back next week. Hopefully so will Corey. Um, but for now, thank you, Ed. Thank you, David. Thank you, everybody, for listening. And uh, stay tuned. There'll be more from us tomorrow. Uh, bye-bye. <laughs>